Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss all things sleep. Sleep has been under attack for the last 10 plus years, and yet it is one of the most powerful things you can do for your performance, your health, your mental well-being, and your body. We explore how to improve your sleep, how sleep works, and what you can be doing to sleep better right now with our guest, Dr. Dan Gartenberg. Are you a fan of the show, and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we exposed the lie that success makes you happy and discovered the truth about engineering happiness into your life. Can you choose to be happy? If so, what should you do and how should you change your behavior? We also confronted the reality that in today's world, we no longer have the tools to handle real or even perceived threats. We discussed how to build mental toughness and what you can do to build your own mental strength and resilience. All of that and much more with our previous guest, Neil Pasricha. If you want to be happier, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Dr. Dan. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Dr. Dan Gartenberg. Dr. Dan is a researcher and tech inventor. He holds a PhD in cognitive psychology with an expertise in sleep, AI, and preventative health. He's the creator of several apps, including the Sonic Sleep Act for detecting sleep stages and improving sleep quality using wearable technology. 
Dr. Dan has three patents, numerous peer-reviewed publications, and his technology featured on the TED stage, the Today Show, and many more media outlets. Dr. Dan, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. And sleep is such an important topic. I'm so excited to dig into it. Tell me a little bit about the way that we sleep today and why it's not the way that we've always slept. Yeah. So, you know, sleep has kind of been under attack, you know, really since the past like 10 years, especially with all these chirping devices, you know, poking you at all times of day, you know, the work-life balance where now that people have emails, they're always expected to be responsive. And it's really created this lack of boundary between when you should be in work mode and when you should be in sleep mode, regenerating your body. And when we start looking into the science of sleep, what we find is that sleep is literally impacts almost every single chronic health disease. It impacts every organ of the body. And so at this time when we're taking in you know, more information than ever, sleep is actually sort of the operating system for how we make sense of all of that sometimes meaningful but oftentimes meaningless you know, Snapchats or tweets or what have you. And so at the same time that sleep is under attack, you know, with crummy lights from your office space and the lack of work-life balance, it's actually probably more important than ever to help us navigate this barrage of information that we're being attacked by every day. It's funny because in our society today, some people treat it as almost a badge of honor to not sleep or to hustle 24-7 and to constantly be checking their phones. And yet the research is pretty clear that that's pretty devastating path for your health. Yeah. I mean, this whole badge of honor societal thing, and you know, I'm a New Yorker, so it's especially palpable here. This, I sleep when I'm dead. You know, people are like, oh, I got four hours of sleep last night. So it's kind of similar to when this kind of smug badge of honor around like binging Netflix for like four hours and stuff. And so there's really like a societal change that needs to be taken place just on how we think about sleep and how we value it. You know, it's almost like it's funny when people say they sleep deprived themselves. I think of my mind, you know, and like, it's almost like when people used to brag like, oh, I smoked like X amount of cigarettes or something like that. You know, that was more socially acceptable 40 years ago to say something like that. I think that's what in 30 years from now, people are going to look back on our society and they'll have a similar kind of, you know, feeling that around smoking as we think about sleep. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And it'll be interesting to see how we look back in the future, 40, 50 years in the future, and see the way today that we treated sleep and all of the things that we didn't understand about how important it is or did understand it didn't act on. Yeah. And I mean, especially as jobs become more cognitive, you know, I do a lot of some programming, which I shouldn't do, but I do a lot of heavy lifting cognitive tasks. Sleep is almost a useful tool in accomplishing those things. There's famous anecdotes about like Einstein and Edison using naps to ideate 
And I think a lot of people can relate to, you know, waking up from, say, a power nap and being able to solve that problem because your brain is processing how to, you know, solve problems and optimize your survival while you're sleeping. And there's a theory that got me introduced to this when I was an undergrad at University of Wisconsin, one of the most famous researchers in this field is a gentleman named Giuliano Tononi, and he founded something called the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis. And it's basically this idea that deep sleep in particular functions to downregulate all of the excitatory connections that you make throughout the day such that the relevant things to your survival rise to the top. So it used to be like, oh, don't go to this part of the jungle. That's where the predators are. Now it's like, oh, what did Mindy say to me at the office, you know, holiday dinner or whatever, you know, something a lot more innocuous, but it's still relevant to your survival oftentimes. And then in REM, you basically replay that pertinent information and then integrate it into your long-term memory and, and working and your working memory and your personality, really long-term memory and personality. So that's one of the main functions of sleep called the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis for why sleep is so important to performance and success. That's fascinating. So tell me a little bit more about why we sleep and, and how important it is. Yeah, so there's probably like eight reasons why we sleep. You know, every organism on the planet sleeps for various reasons. Obviously, you know, for lower organisms, it's like more around energy conservation, making it so you you can get predators at certain times and focus your energy or get prey at certain times and focus your energy on that. For humans and actually all, all living organisms, a lot of this is cell recovery and repairing damaged cells in your body. And something that we focus in our laboratory is in how sleep actually cleans out beta amyloid plaques that form in your brain, which are associated with things like Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, deep sleep in particular, responsible for human growth hormone, doing the cell recovery thing, and then these areas involving, you know, memory integration, whatnot. Sometimes when I try to scare people, I say stuff like sleep is related to cardiovascular disease very strongly. If you don't go treated for something like sleep apnea, it takes like five years off of your life in one study they showed. But it also is correlated with cancer, as I mentioned, Alzheimer's disease, really strong um, correlations with hypertension. Even one day of sleep deprivation can cause a spike. And there's a cool science experiment that every member of society does twice a year, which is daylight savings time. And it's, you know, looking at like epidemiology, you know, looking at population studies, it's really interesting. What they find is when we lose an hour, the rate of heart attacks predictably increases, which again points to how sleep is really so tied to our health and well-being. It's amazing that sleep or lack of sleep essentially correlates with all-cause mortality essentially across nearly every negative outcome increases in probability if you're not sleeping and every positive outcome or many positive outcomes increase in probability if you are. That's right. Tell me a little bit more about deep sleep and zooming that out slightly. 
more broadly, the sleep phases, what is sleep made of and, and, and what are the different components of it? So this is what is so captivating to me. You know, I'm a very curious person and explorer, you know, and I also want to help people. And, you know, the neuroscience and sleep in particular is one of those last frontiers right up there. I, you know, the brain is right up there with the universe in my mind. And the crazy thing about sleep is we really only discovered this process around 70 years ago when we made this distinction between REM and non-REM sleep based on hooking people up to various EEGs. And these EEG electrodes, this montage is known as in sleep as polysomnography. And it's a 16-channel montage. Usually there's 12 on the scalp at various locations to get the different brain regions, EOGs to measure REM, because when you're in REM sleep, your eyes dart around while you're dreaming and actually your body's paralyzed. And the first distinction that they made with the stages, you know, in the 40s, basically, was what's known as REM and non-REM. And there's really clear physiological signals between those stages. Your body's paralyzed in REM. You lose thermal regulation. When I've looked at people's brainwaves in the lab and when they're in REM, it's almost a magical thing. Like you see a really noticeable transition on what we use to measure sleep. And then there's non-REM. And this is what points to how complicated this process is. And we really still don't understand it. The fact that in the United States, there are four stages of sleep. In Europe, there are five stages of sleep. And what this points to is the fact that you know, humans a lot of times like to create these sort of arbitrary categories. It gives you a sense of control. But when you look at some of these physiological phenomena, it's not so easy to categorize them. And the, and the way that we even define sleep in and of itself is probably going to be archaic in the next, like, as soon as 10 years, I think. Some researchers even claim that there are 19 stages of sleep. And a lot of this has to do with distinctions in light sleep or N1, that transition phase between consciousness and the unconscious mind, which is probably much more complicated than we give it credit for. And another area that we're fascinated in in our, in our laboratory. But so it's very complicated. A simple way of thinking about what you want to get out of your sleep is you want more REM and you want more deep sleep at the expense of light sleep. And you want to make sure that you're sleeping enough. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. And I want to dig into how we can ultimately capture both more REM and more deep sleep. But before we do, tell me a little bit more about the distinction between each of those and which works for things like memory consolidation and things like that, which is more important for cell regeneration, et cetera, and, and what's happening in each of those phases. Yeah. So the thing about REM and deep sleep is that they're very tied together. So like usually it's hard to inhibit one without inhibiting the other. I think about it like deep sleep is how we prune and then REM is how we integrate. And when you're in REM, your consciousness is like very similar to your waking consciousness. 
Um, you know, it's how, why we remember our dreams from like that perspective of the eye. Like, you know, you, 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 you have your sense of self when you're in REM. When you're in deep sleep, your brain is oscillating at these delta waves, which are very different to waking life. Like you basically don't have a sense of self really when you're in deep sleep. Your whole brain oscillates in these delta wave bursts, which is like 0.8 to like one hertz basically. And as you get older, what happens is you lose that percentage of time spent in deep sleep usually at the expense of light sleep. And so what a lot of researchers now are interested in is since we lose this as we get older, is there a way, and they think it's related to aging, you know, memory, all these really things that help you keep you young. Is there a way, especially for older people, to enhance your deep sleep brainwaves? And, you know, I've been in this field for a while. I've been making sleep apps for a long time. I, I kind of gave up for a while when I saw how inaccurate some of the sensors were when I was doing um, algorithm development work for a Fortune 500 company in grad school. But when the Apple Watch came out, what we saw was finally we can get the raw data from the watch augmented with heart rate and actually detect people's sleep stages in real time for the purpose of delivering an intervention that actually makes their sleep more regenerative. So that's kind of, you know, the golden goose thing that I'm going to dedicate my life to trying to figure out. Is there a way to get more out of the sleep that you're already getting? I mean, first and foremost, get enough sleep. After that, how do you get more out of the sleep that you're getting? And, you know, we study this in a very scientific way in our laboratory, but there's lots of hacks that I can throw at you in order to get you to have a more regenerative night of sleep through increasing your deep sleep brain waves and augmenting your REM as well. And so I'd be happy to dive into that with you. Yeah, absolutely. No, I want to get into all of the, the hacks for improving deep sleep, for augmenting REM sleep, for making it more effective. Before we do that, the thing that fascinates me is and I've anecdotally heard this I'm sure many people have this idea that your sleep actually gets worse as you get older and, and it makes sense that this deep sleep phase is the thing that's decreasing I'm curious for somebody who's listening we've probably heard these recommendations but it always bears repeating how much sleep should you actually be getting and mm -hmm. what are the consequences of saying oh I you know I can operate just fine on 4 hours of sleep or 6 hours of sleep or whatever that number is yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, great. Thanks for bringing that there. Because that, that's really one of the core questions that needs to be understood. And oftentimes the media is really bad at expressing nuance. And, you know, there's all these articles like, you know, get eight hours of sleep. I, I even have an article that I was quoted in eight and a half is the new eight. The thing about something like sleep is it's very individualistic. So it's hard to give sort of these generic pieces of advice that are good clickbait. You know, it's not a great headline like some people need seven hours, other people need eight. So the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine gave a consensus report amongst all the best sleep researchers in the field that adults need seven to nine hours of sleep on a regular basis. So that's a nice lower limit. 
But something to keep in mind is when they say that, they also mean seven hours of sleep, not seven hours in bed. And actually, if you spend more than you know 95%, if you spend like 100% of the time in bed asleep, it actually probably means you're sleep depriving yourself. Like a healthy amount would be like 90 to 95%. So you know, basically what that means is adults should be spending at least seven and a half hours in bed. Now, there's lots of things that can impact how much sleep you need. And not only does it differ between individuals, but it also differs intra-individually. Meaning, you know, last week, um, started up a more intense workout routine and I needed more sleep that next night. You know, bodybuilders do this all the time. They take these, uh, you know, long naps in a day to build up their human growth, growth hormone so their body can recover and create more muscle. So, and also, you know, other situations like if you're sick, you know, if you feel yourself getting a sick, you want to get more sleep that day. So not only is it that I can't tell you what you need generally, I can't even tell you what you need exactly like it's going to vary from day to day too, but there are certain ways that you could sort of figure out your natural sleep need. One of them that my professor mentioned to me, Orfeo Buxton at Penn State, I work with him closely in our research, is basically try to book like a relaxing vacation, go to bed at the same time every day. Um, a vacation where you don't have a lot of external things pulling you out and how much you sleep without those external pressures is probably how much sleep you need. One way we like to think about it is sleep to effect, meaning you should sleep until you basically can't sleep anymore. There's some nu nuance to that, but you know, if you're depressed or if you have uh, like some thyroid issues, that might not be the case. But for generally healthy people, you should just sleep until you can't sleep anymore and you shouldn't feel tired during the day. Is there a such thing as oversleeping? So, I mean, you can oversleep for sure. And, you know, if you're, I'm not a medical doctor, by the way, but if you're depressed or something, you might not want to sleep too much. And actually, there's some evidence that uh, they have some, if you do extreme sleep deprivation, it can actually bounce you out of depression in some uh, I'm not recommending doing that. Talk to your doc doctor. So there, there is some links to like mood and depression and you can actually shift yourself into a manic state and certain sleep deprived state. I mean, this is some, an, another topic, but like, you know, our society has like these very judgmental things about like depression and mania. And it's also a naturally occurring thing to be able to shift into a manic state when your environment pushes you to do so, you know, if you're being chased by a predator, you better get into a manic state for that. And, you know, sometimes when I'm watching a product or whatnot, I'll kind of get in a manic state a little bit and I'll actually get less sleep when I'm in, when I'm in that uh, kind of situation. I have a good metacognition on when I'm in a, a state like that cause I don't have a chemical thing. It's caused by like external environmental pressures, basically pushing me into that mindset. A lot of times what I'll do in response is I'll have a recovery sleep after that kind of high performance situation. This, this is just some personal experiences that I've had, but I think a lot of people can relate. Is there such a thing as either catching up on sleep or I've heard some people use the concept of a sleep bank where you sleep a bunch and then don't sleep as much for a couple nights. Is, does that actually work or do you need 
a certain amount every single night to really reap the benefits? I mean, it works to some degree, but you can't fully catch up. You know, the ideal situation, if I were to say what the ideal situation is, is get a healthy amount every night. Now, obviously, that's not necessarily practical. So in the cases where you're not getting enough one night, it's better to catch up the next day than to continue getting that enough. If that Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's possible, but it's not an ideal scenario. You can make up some of the sleep debt, but you can't make up all of it. And there is actually like a strategy for taking it's called in sleep. There's actually different types of naps. There's something called like an appetitive nap that you can do in preparation for your sleep deprivation and the timing of naps, especially for like shift work, jet lag is something that's really important to maybe proactively counteracting a situation where you know you'll be sleep depriving yourself. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but you're bringing up some topics that I think are really interesting. I want to dig into napping briefly. Is This is another one that there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of gray areas. I've heard some people say that naps are amazing. They're super beneficial for you. I've, I've heard other research that napping actually reduces the quality of your sleep or your ability to fall asleep. If you're super tired or if you're not, when is napping appropriate? When is napping a, a beneficial strategy and or, or should you be napping at all? Yeah. And so this is one of those other nuances that it's really hard to give generic feedback on. And, you know, really that's what we're trying to do with, with, with sonic sleep is understand uniquely what's going on with the individual so we can give this relevant feedback. And napping is a perfect example where you can't give a generic piece of advice to someone. So if someone has a problem falling asleep and staying asleep, you know, they have sleep problems, it's recommended that they do not take a nap. Because what you want to do if you have problems falling asleep and stay asleep and staying asleep is you want to regularize your sleep and consolidate your sleep. And what naps can do for those people is it makes it so it's even more difficult to consolidate their sleep because it kind of throws off their circadian rhythm. You actually want to build homeostatic sleep pressure at specific times if you're having problems falling asleep and staying asleep. And one way to doing that is to not take naps and actually to push your bedtime back a little bit in certain situations. Now, if you're someone like me who doesn't really have a sleep problem, I mean, sometimes it's perfectly normal. You know, almost everyone periodically throughout the year from a stressful situation has problems falling asleep. But I don't have chronic problem. I don't have a chronic chronic problem. So for someone like me, um, taking a twenty minute power nap right at your circadian dip is probably the optimum performance. Like I find that my optimum performance is to probably take get like seven and a half hours sleep and then do a twenty minute power nap right at my circadian dip. Now I'm sort of a night person. So that's for me around, you know, like three, three, three thirty in the afternoon. I'll do rest my even resting your eyes for that period when you have naturally have this dip in alertness after lunch. After I do that, I come back, I'm able to reprocess what I was doing earlier in the day, almost like I from a new slate, like I just woke up from you know, processing all this information and I'm able, able to attack the day with more vigor when I do those sorts of power naps. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Very interesting. And, and, and that's a great distinction between optimal performance and trying to reconcile or solve some kind of sleep problem and when napping may or may not be appropriate. The other topic that you just touched on that I want to understand a little bit better is the circadian rhythm. You talked about having a power nap right at your circadian dip. What is that and and how does that fit into the broader structure of a circadian rhythm and how we can think about shaping our our days and our sleep schedules and so forth around that? Yeah, so the story I like to tell around the circadian rhythm is the fact that we evolved from bacteria in the ocean that could differentiate sunlight from darkness. And that's what eventually formed the human eye. So like every organism on the planet responds to circadian rhythms. It's a 24-hour cycle for humans, actually a little bit less than that, but close to a 24-hour cycle. And basically what this is, is they've done these crazy studies where they'll bring someone in like a completely dark environment for X amount of time and, and like days or months even, and you'll fall into a natural cycle of when you're awake and when you're asleep and when you have alertness and when you don't, they actually have these reaction time tests called psychomotor vigilance task, which we've also uh, implemented and explored in some of our software where it's basically sensitive to how much alertness you have throughout the day. So a typical circadian rhythm for a human, usually you'll have a peak alertness about two hours after you wake up. You'll have a decline in alertness about two hours after lunch. You'll start getting more alert as you approach dinner. After you eat dinner, and some of this corresponds to like the glucose spikes after meals. So like when you're doing intermittent fasting stuff, which I actually do, there's some stuff to be considerate of with all of this. And then you, you gradually get more tired after dinner and you get a peak tiredness at around three in the morning, you know, like when you're going to wake up for a flight or something like this. And so knowing where you are in this, and we actually have genes that can tell us if we're a morning person or an evening person, and there's a field of sleep science called chronobiology, which is a type of understanding of how like immediate early genes, like genes that express themselves based on your environment can get activated to actually be able to shift you to be more of an evening person or more of a night person. So we have a genetic predisposition to be one of these. It probably has to do with something like the fact that we were, you know, try in tribal clusters of 100 people for a long time. It makes sense for someone to sort of always be awake. So there's also the shift that happens as you get older. You kind of shift to be more of a, a morning lark, as they say. You know, I'm I'm a night owl, but we, you can actually shift these. And I, I'm a crazy mad scientist, so I've done some stuff where I've shifted mine based on this German word in sleep science, and I, I get kind of nerdy on some of this stuff. Sorry if I get a little too nerdy, but there's this German word called Zeitgeber, which means timekeeper in German. And what that means is there are these environmental cues that you can exploit to entrench your circadian rhythm, actually, and make your sleep deeper and shift your rhythm to either be more of a morning person or a night owl. The biggest Zeitgeber is actually 
sunlight. And that's why these these, uh, office and hospital environments that are void of sunlight are so problematic. And other things are timing of meals, timing of exercise, even things like engaging in social interactions late at night where you're exciting yourself at a time when your body usually isn't excited can shift your circadian rhythm. And so by entrenching this rhythm, you want a healthy rhythm. You want, you know, as you get older, it flattens, which is bad. You want a peak alertness and you want a period of decline. And that's something that we'd help people achieve is with timing of, you know, meals, getting sunlight, and we integrate with like uh, smart lights. And, you know, I have this whole system in my home that's triggered with Alexa, where I say like, you know, hey, I'm going to sleep. And there's this whole chain of events with sounds that relax me. um, And the whole, all the lights turn red, you actually want red light as you get closer to to nighttime. And so these are just some, some of the hacks that you can use to entrench the circadian rhythm and achieve more alertness and success the next day. Really quickly, tell me how intermittent fasting interacts one way or another with the circadian rhythm and energy peaks and valleys throughout the day. Yeah. So what happens a lot of times, and so, you know, we have clients where I try to troubleshoot this with them, but like, for example, if you're having issues with waking up too early, there's actually something called, um, there's like evening insomnia and morning insomnia. So sometimes the reason for that is some people fast at night and some people fast in the the day. You know, you kind of have two options, right? So for the people that are, that eat right, right when they wake up, sometimes when they activate that rhythm too early, by eating or doing exercise early in the morning, it also confuses their body and it tells their body that they should be awake then. So then they start having problems where they're waking up too early and not being able to fall asleep. And so the same, the same thing can be said for the other direction. You know, another thing to be conscientious of is like, you don't want to go to bed too hungry because it's going to like negatively impact like your sleep quality and stuff. So a lot of this is figuring out if you're intermittent fasting and I'm a big proponent. I intermittent fast every day. I'm a big proponent of it, but just be conscientious of of where you're lining up here and making sure that it's not negatively impacting your sleep quality. Very interesting. All right. I want to come back to some of the ways that we can improve our deep sleep, some of the hacks and strategies for getting better deep sleep, for maximizing the deep sleep that we already have, and for augmenting and improving our REM sleep as well. Yeah. And so that's really the area of focus that I've dedicated my life to, which is this idea that basically the brain is a set of circuits and associations. Okay. And what these researchers found in 2013 that reinvigorated my effort to build this technology was that you could actually play a sound at a certain pulse rate that emulates your deep sleep brain waves and it entrenches that neural state. They used to do this, like there's pretty convincing evidence that you can do this with um, transcranial direct current stimulation. Like it's something similar to like uh, Daniel Chow's thing with um, Halo Neuroscience. What they also have shown is that you don't have to pulse electricity, which is a little bit invasive, you can actually get similar effects with sounds that pulse at a similar frequency as the delta wave. 
And so what we did in our laboratory at Penn State is we brought people into a lab, hooked them up to polysomnography for four days, had someone, a polysomnography technologist, stay up all night and systematically play these sounds to people. And what we were able to show is that we could actually increase your delta waves, increase the amount of time that you spend in deep sleep. What we're trying to do now is map that on to being able to have improved memory performance the next day and actually addressing um, conversion to Alzheimer's disease by enhancing people's deep sleep since it's so associated with cleaning out these maladaptive plaques that form in your brain throughout the day. Like sleep is how we clean this stuff out and deep sleep in particular. So that's how we're attacking getting more deep sleep. There's other like low hanging fruit things that we do with Sonic. Like basically a really easy way to improve your sleep quality is to block out noise pollution, like especially in New York. This is something where you're not aware of how much sounds in your environment can adversely impact your sleep quality. And I became very aware of this when I looked at people's brains in the lab and literally like I would see the air conditioning turning on in the laboratory and you'd get these little brain arousals. And people are not conscious of what's happening when they're asleep. And uh, something emblematic of this is like if you have sleep apnea, which is um, a disease where you won't be able to breathe throughout the night, you can have as many as 100 arousals an hour and have no conscious awareness of this. So this is just pointing to how unconscious we are when we're in this sleep state to things like noise pollution and snoring, which can negatively impact sleep. So a simple hack there, which many people have keyed into probably already, is having like an air conditioning fan sound. You know, we have this adaptive pink noise cushion that kind of changes based on what your iPhone is sensing in your environment that's designed specifically to block out these noise pollution sounds. Other just really quick hacks for your audience to try to understand how to get more deep sleep is actually messing with like temperature with these like ice baths or like saunas or things building up your homeostatic sleep need with like exercise throughout the day is something and this is a recommendation i really like to give but there's some evidence that having an orgasm actually improves your sleep quality so those are little hacks to try to get more deep sleep i can get into rem if we have time Yeah, I want to dig into the REM strategies as well. Before we do, really quickly, I just want to make sure I understand this concept. You mentioned the idea of of your homeostatic sleep need and how exercise, as an example, can build that up. Is that essentially the notion that the more activity, the more certain things you do throughout the day, you build up almost a level of tiredness and then you have better sleep as a result of that? That's exactly right. Okay, got it. No, that's really interesting. So yeah, let's dig into let's dig into REM sleep a little bit. Tell me about some of the ways to improve or augment REM sleep as well. Yes, yeah, so this is kind of experimental technology that still needs to be vetted out. But in sleep science, there's something called um, targeted memory reactivation, and basically what they found is that if you're doing some kind of cognitive task while you're say getting exposed to a certain smell. Um, like the smell of roses, and then you replay that smell when someone is in a REM state, 
through associative priming, you know, Pavlovian response, it actually primes that memory from the day while you're dreaming. And it helps you process and encode that information more such that you perform better the next day. And like, you know, a lot of this you can think about another way that I think about it is how like athletes visualize their what they're good at, you know, and doing it during the nighttime actually helps you perform the next day. And there's that finding is a very strong finding. Like the act of visualizing doing something actually makes you better at doing it. And the idea here is that you could prime the ability to visualize tasks that you want to be optimal at by priming yourself through various cues at certain times of your sleep. And since we understand the science of how to play sounds such that your brain responds to it, but it doesn't wake you up, then we can actually do things um, where people, you know, I do this thing where I focus on my 10-year vision while I'm listening to a specific sound. And then Sonic replays that sound when I'm most likely to be in a REM sleep because I'm trying to actualize this 10-year vision that I have for myself. Do you have any memories or experiences of dreams that you've had that the sounds actually created these vivid or, or almost lucid dream experiences as a result of that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still exploring this honestly, and a lot of this is subconscious. So it's a little bit hard to tell if it's working in, in, in all honesty, but I generally through this practice of gratitude is another thing that I focused on a lot and visualizing my reality I am finding that the reality I'm visualizing and surrendering a little bit is coming to fruition. It's kind of more of a general sense of things. I can't cite a specific lucid dream for you right now, unfortunately. Right, have you done any research or, or dug into it all the concept of lucid dreaming or, or how lucid dreaming works? I have. And this is partly, you know, in my college days, what got me so excited about this was um, this really cool movie, Waking Life, if you've ever seen it. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah. Richard Linklater, brilliant guy. It's like uh, kind of a, about lucid dreaming and how you can prime it. And so that really got me interested in this whole thing. And there is science that backs it up. You know, I'm not, I'm honestly, like, I've tried to do it a little bit. I want to, I'm starting to tackle it a little bit more, but I'm not great at it right now. But people that are good at it, since the only thing you can move when you're in dream state, when you're in REM, and by the way, you dream a little bit in light sleep too, but when you're in REM, you're having these intense dreams and they train these lucid dreamers to move their eyes in certain patterns when they're having a lucid dream, which pretty much unequivocally shows that people that are good at lucid dreaming can control their dreams. They're literally able to control their eye movements while they're in a dream state, which is some captivating science. It's so fascinating. Yeah, that's probably a topic for a whole different interview, but it's something that's, that's personally really interesting to me and I've always wanted to dig into a little bit more as well. Me too. And uh, there's going to be some tools in store for you soon, I think. Ooh, so Very interesting. Well, I'm curious. We've talked about a lot of different strategies, the importance of sleep, some great tools and tips. For listeners who want to concretely implement this, who want to improve their sleep or take action on something that we've talked about today, what would one action item be or piece of homework that you would give them to start taking action towards having better sleep? 
So this is the homework that I like to start people out with. Think about your life. There is one thing unique to you that you can do that's going to either help you get more sleep or improve the timing of your sleep such that you can improve your sleep quality, whether it's maybe going to bed a little bit earlier, maybe letting yourself sleep in a little bit more on a, on, on a day where you can. You know, it's going to be different for everybody. Maybe it's talking to your boss about flexible work times, which is something that, you know, we're working with some corporate wellness clients to do stuff like this. But it's unique to you. Everyone's at a different place. And so just think about what it might be for you and try to implement that thing. You talked about work schedules and how this plays into it. That made me think of a putting a bow on this in some way or, or really encapsulating an important point that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation as well is this idea that in many ways, especially in America, especially in, in Western societies, this, this idea of sleep and getting a, lo- a lot of sleep and being somebody who sleeps a full eight to nine hours a night or seven to nine hours a night is almost derided or looked down on or thought of as being lazy. But the reality is that in many ways, from a productivity standpoint, from an effectiveness standpoint, it's often much better to be someone who's sleeping enough and, and sleeping effectively than it is to be somebody who's pulling all nighters and sleeping four hours a night. Totally. And like as an entrepreneur, like I would much rather someone that's on my team who has fully slept than someone who is sleep deprived. You know, you act erratically when you're sleep deprived. Personally, I'm kind of like not a nice person. No one wants to work with that cranky sleep deprived person. And frankly, we're, I think, living in a society that has this global pathology when it's coming to not sleeping enough. And it's, we're having like this global sickness where, you know, we're, you're not as empathetic to other people when you're sleep deprived. And for me, I see sleep as a pathway, frankly, just for making us a little nicer to each other. Dr. Dan, for listeners who want to find out more about you, your work, and all of the fascinating research and tools that you've created for improving sleep, where can people find you and, and these resources online? Yeah, you can check out Sonic Sleep Coach. We have Android and Apple integration. And I think we have probably the most accurate Apple Watch algorithm for measuring sleep. And there's a bunch of enhancement tools and meditations and deep sleep stimulation in in that technology. Well, Dr. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all of this wisdom, some really insightful takeaways about how sleep works and, and how we can improve our own sleep. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Great questions. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. 
Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand. Our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything, you can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.